0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12 through verse 28. That is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12 and ending at the end of the chapter. The text reads like this. It says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Our modern world is full of so many different things that we expect to either work or exist without us necessarily thinking about it or putting too much attention towards it. For example, when you buy something expensive like a cell phone or a car, you expect that thing to work in the certain way that it was advertised to you. But this doesn't apply to just technology. When we go to the grocery store and pick up something like, for example, a jar of peanut butter, we expect what we buy to be exactly what we paid the money for but do any of us know exactly what constitutes a jar of peanut butter? What makes peanut butter peanut butter? How do we know that the factory which produced it has made this peanut butter to 100% accuracy compared to the thousands of other jars that the factory produced that day? Well... The way that this is most often done is through the testing of these products. Each jar is compared to a standard in order to make sure that the product being produced uh, meets the general requirements to be able to put out towards the consumer. But the question then stands, who decides what the standard for these products are? What makes them viable? This past week, I learned, about a, I learned about this place called the National Institute for Standards and Technologies, or NIST, which is a U.S.-based government organization that focuses on creating standard reference materials. Essentially what they do is they take large sample sizes of a product and they homogenize or they mix them all together to make sure That they are evenly distributed, that each product contains the same amount of compounds inside of it, and then they create these products called SRMs, or Standard Reference Material. These SRMs are then sold to researchers and manufacturers so that they can calibrate their equipment accordingly. This way, the buyer will know that their equipment is working when their product matches the test results of the standard reference material. You see, I found this organization so interesting because it is something that I've never really even thought about. In order for the jar of peanut butter that I buy to even be on the shelf in the first place, it must be carefully crafted and meet this standard in order to be the product that it says it is. Without a standard, going to the grocery store would be incredibly chaotic, as each time we would grab something, we might end up with a different product entirely. Standards, whether we think about them or not, help us to live better lives. The importance of standards does not only apply to food products and consumer goods. It also applies to important things like Groups of people. Countries impose laws on their citizens to promote the greater good of the people. Laws exist to keep the community safe and promote general well-being. Without these standards, everything that we would see would be utter chaos. It shouldn't be a surprise then that the church has standards that we should be striving for as we meet as a congregation but instead of finding out what our standard is from some government agency, we have an even higher authority that we can call upon and look to for our standard. God has given to us through scripture a standard of how we as the church are supposed to act. And this is how we can be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what we see here in our final section of 1 Thessalonians. Tonight, we are going to be walking through this passage and seeing how Paul instructs step-by-step to understand the standard in which God calls us to so that we can honor him in the best way possible. The goal of our study this evening will be to see that gospel communities require godly conduct. We will see this by looking at how gospel communities must respect godly leaders, how gospel communities need godly fellowship, how gospel communities need godly worship, and how gospel communities are ultimately built by God alone. So let's start at the first part of our passage, starting in verse 12. The first two verses say this. It said, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. In the beginning of Paul's final instructions to the Thessalonian church in this first letter that he has written to them, he gives, them, he gives them instructions regarding the leaders within the church. Though he never explicitly uses the word elder or pastor here, reading this description for exactly who he's describing, specifically how he describes them as over you in the Lord, this particular description fits perfectly into the category of an elder. This leads me to my first point for this evening, And the point that Paul is making here in these first two verses, gospel communities must respect godly leaders. Now, what do I mean when I say godly leaders? In our modern age, it feels as if there is a new Christian leader having a falling out with their churches every week because of some unrepentant or hidden sin. Without even realizing it, there has been a cultural uprising in disrepair trusting church leaders, mostly because they would not qualify for what a godly leader should be. Well, thankfully for us, Paul qualifies exactly what a godly leader here is, describing three different attributes, which we will look at now. The first attribute that Paul describes is that the leader is laboring among you. This is a pretty straightforward and simple description But we need to stop here for a moment, camp inside of this, to come to an understanding of how we are thinking of pastoral work. Who to do that better than me, the person who is trying to discover right now every aspect of what being a pastor is like during my time here. So for many of us, we can be faced with a temptation to think that a pastor is a Sunday-only job. (laughs) I heard some chuckles there, so you guys definitely understand that, which I praise God for. Uh, (laughs) The pastoral position, from what I have seen very recently, is one of the hardest working jobs, I I think, out there. Um, I I was reading a couple of research studies in preparation for this sermon, and I came across a couple of statistics about the pastoral role. The first being that 75% of pastors report being either extremely stressed or highly stressed. And that 90% of pastors are working between 55 to 75 hours per week. This is by far, this is far from a Sunday only job. It is no wonder here that Paul uses the Greek word koraio, which is normally translated as toil, strive, or struggle to describe this work of pastoral ministry. Paul used this verb in other places in scripture to describe the hard work of farmers or even his own tent making. This verb adequately describes how the work of pastoral ministry is a tiring one using a lot of energy and effort. As John Stott wrote in his commentary about this specifically, it says, whether it is the study and preparation of sermons or the visiting of sick and counseling the disturbed or instructing people for baptism or marriage or being diligent in intercession, these things demand that pastors toil, striving with all the energy which Christ mightily inspires within them. The second attribute that Paul uses to describe a godly leader here is that they are over you in the Lord. Our first thoughts when we hear something like this should not be that they are over you in terms of grace or blessing, but that God has placed them over you to shepherd his people, bringing you closer to God. Of course, this should be sought to be done out of servant leadership you see Christ is our perfect example in this. He is the perfect example of what we as Christians, but in this instance, pastors should be striving to do striving to be you see mark ten forty five tells us that Christ came to serve others, not he himself to be served. This means that although Christian leaders may be over you in the Lord as Paul describes it, they should be willingly putting themselves under you so that they may serve you. And finally, the third attribute of a godly leader is that they admonish you. Admonish is not a word that we use very often, but means to sternly warn or reprimand someone for their wrongdoing. The work of admonishing is in itself a difficult part of the ministry because of the confrontational nature of this action. While it can be scary to be told you are doing wrong, this work should always be done with the concern for the glory of God in all things. This isn't so that the pastor may benefit, but is instead for the benefit of the individual and the community as a whole. These church leaders, as Paul describes them here, need to be respected. They work tirelessly so that you may have the opportunity to grow closer to God. Church leaders want you to grow and flourish in the Lord, so we must respect them in every way that we can. Realize how much they are working and toiling for you. For most people, When you get home from your job, you can just flip a switch and stop thinking about your work until the next day. Well, for the pastor, it really is not that easy. When your job is shepherding souls so that they can grow closer to God, that switch in your brain becomes a lot harder to turn off because of just how important the work is. There's always something more that they believe that they could be doing. So church, what we need to be doing as a response to this is that we need to be respecting our church leaders wherever possible. They only want what is best for you so that you may come and draw closer to our living God. But the pastor and congregation relationship isn't the only one that we are instructed about here in this section We also have to worry about the relationship that we have between each other here in the congregation. Let's continue reading and see how Paul instructs us concerning this. Picking up back in verse 14, it says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Paul continues on in this section instructing how we are supposed to be acting among ourselves. We are to enjoy the fellowship that we have here in this church and truly love one another in a God-honoring way then we must love one another through the highs and lows of life. If we do this, then we are living out the godly fellowship that the Lord has called us to live in as a church. And this leads me to my second point for this evening. Gospel communities need godly fellowship. There are three groups, again, in this section that Paul encourages to the Thessalonian church to deal with. The first of which is the idle or lazy. This seems to be the same group that Paul talked about earlier in 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12. These people were not minding their own affairs but were making trouble for themselves by worrying about other people's problems and not involving themselves in not keeping to themselves but involving themselves in everyone else's business. Paul knows this and instructs the church to admonish these people and correct them. Now, you may be thinking, well, isn't it the job of the pastor to admonish the people? We just read that in the previous verse. Well, that, that is one aspect of the pastor's position, but in all honesty, the pastors or elders will not be able to see everything that is happening within the church itself. Their outreach can only go so far. So then Paul commands members of the church to also be admonishing the idle or the lazy because that is the loving thing to do. We should be seeking to push one another closer to God through our fellowship. And this is the goal of why Paul says that we need to be, as a church, admonishing the idol. The second thing is encouraging the faint-hearted. There may be a couple of reasons why the Thessalonians were feeling fainthearted. As we have talked about previously and heard, even in this, in, this morning in Hugh's sermon, the Thessalonians knew what persecution was like. We also talked about last week how some of the Thessalonians had died and many people inside of the church were worried about whether or not they would be saved and be together with the Lord. Paul answered this by saying that we should encourage them uh, with the belief that they will be reunited with them when Christ returns. But these shouldn't be the only circumstances that we should encourage the faint hearted. We should also be seeking to encourage uh, encourage anyone who's going through any type of trial that this life could throw, up, throw at us. So this way, we should be rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. And finally, the third thing that we need to be doing as a congregation is helping the weak. This is most likely referring to the physically weak, whether that being Sickness or financial difficulty. This is the area of physical ministry that we should be seeking to tend to as well. But concluding this section, Paul gives two remarks that really draw this section to a close. The first being is that we should be patient with them and the second being that we will not repay evil for evil but always seek to do good when we are serving people from each of these three groups, we usually will see people who are thankful for our serving of them, who are thankful for our actions towards them. But sadly, this will not always be the case. There are many reasons, there, there, there are many people for one reason or another who will not be grateful in the moment for the help that they are receiving and can be mean and nasty to us. When I think of something like this happening, I think of the movie character uh, Carl Fredrickson from the Pixar movie Up. Throughout the whole movie, Carl does not accept any help from any of the characters, choosing to be as self-centered as possible after his wife passes away. This gets to the point where he is about to be evicted from his home. When he takes his home up with uh, all of the balloons Uh, He accidentally brings along with him Russell, a young scout who is just trying to seek uh, his last merit badge, the assisting the elderly badge. (laughs) Throughout the whole movie, Carl dreams about ways to get rid of Russell. Only until when Carl is finally alone with what he believes is the happiness that he'll find, finds loneliness and realizes just how much he needs help from people, leading him to be grateful for Russell's company at the end of the movie. When we try to serve other people, they may not always be thankful right away for your help. They could be like Carl and be cranky and angry at you for trying to help, but this doesn't mean that we need to stop serving them in any way. Instead, we should be seeking to be gracious to them and do good for them regardless of their response. As Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows us, shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We as people were retaliating against God's graciousness, but Christ still came and died for us. Uh, We then as a church are called to reflect Christ in the same way. Just as Christ himself was patient with us as sinners, so we need to be gracious with those around us who are repaying evil for the good that we are trying to do to them. Do not repay evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another, for this is the essence of godly. Fellowship. Picking back up in our text, let's look at verses uh, 16 to 22. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. When initially reading this, we can start to think that these commands are for the individual to act upon. (laughs) This is because we miss a slight, a small nuance in the Greek translation. You see all of the verbs here in this section are actually uh, a second person plural verb meaning we should be reading this with the idea that this is to be done collectively, fitting in the words, you all, by each verb. Understanding that this text is about instructions to the church, then this section is instructing us as a congregation about how to do godly worship, leading me to my third point, gospel communities need godly worship. Verses 16 through 18 of this section deal with praise. Paul begins with three commands. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. These three things give us the opportunity to affirm our faith and belief in God and experience it. We as Christians are able to rejoice because we have received salvation through Christ Jesus We sang that this evening when we sang the lyrics, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. We've prayed multiple times throughout the service. All of this worship is characterized by a spirit of thankfulness for the work that God has done in our lives. And those are the three actions that Paul commands us to do here. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. You see that because each of our services aren't just put together willy-nilly. Hugh and myself aren't sitting in our offices closing our eyes and throwing a dart at a board of all the different hymns that we sing. No, we are spending time individually picking out the different parts of our service so that we can fall within the commands taken here in this section This is why each part of the service is carefully planned because it is God's will for us to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks as a body of Christ. The next couple of verses is, is the fun part of the text. It can lead us to a bit of controversy, so let me slow down for a minute and explain it. When it comes to thinking about prophecy, There are a lot of different interpretations of whether the gift of prophecy exists today. You see, back in biblical times, prophets existed as representatives for God, speaking on God's behalf to his people. That is why we have books of the Bible like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Etc. Etc. But we know. But now we know that the canon of Scripture is closed. This book does not need any more. We have all of the words that God has given to us. We don't need any more. So, is prophecy, as understood in this kind of context, necessary? Well, to help us uh, figure out this problem, I want to turn back to John Stott, who I believed said it best when he wrote this. He said. Nevertheless, once the uniqueness of the biblical prophets and apostles had, has been conceded, we should, be ready, uh, we should be ready to add that there are today secondary and subsidiary kinds of prophetic gifts in ministry. For God undoubtedly gives some a remarkable degree of insight into Scripture itself, or into its application to the contemporary world, or into his particular will for a particular person in particular situations. You see, when I asked Hugh about this section, he pointed me to a story about his uh, good friend Spurgeon. (laughs) (laughs) You see, in in the winter of 1855, Spurgeon was preaching in Exeter Hall in London when he suddenly broke off from his subject and pointing out in a certain direction said, young man, those gloves you are wearing have not been paid for. You have stolen them from your employer. At the close of the service, a young man looking very pale and greatly agitated came to the room which was used as a vestry and begged for a private interview with Mr. Spurgeon. On being admitted, he placed a pair of gloves upon the table and tearfully said, it is the first time I have robbed my master and I will never do it again. You won't expose me, sir, will you? It would kill my mother if she heard that I had become a thief. You see, the Lord continues to provide insight to his will to his people. That is what prophecy means most properly here in this context. Each insight that we receive, we should be testing against the words of Scripture and hold to what is good. Don't just listen to whoever is standing in the pulpit for that week. Look to Scripture yourself and see what God has said there. Don't just take our words for it if we are not doing this, if we are not testing these insights against scripture, then we, are, then we can be quenching the spirit um, or putting out the fire of the spirit of God and ignoring God's will. So in our godly worship, we then need to be clinging to the word of God and seeking insights into it. Lucky for us, that's exactly what we are doing right now. Uh, So together we are looking through God's word together and seeking to understand it. Only through the reading and exposition of scripture are we able to determine God's wills for our lives and hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now, now finally, let's read the last couple of verses here in this section. Picking up back in verse 23, it says, now may the, God of peace sanct- uh, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read aloud to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This final section serves to us as a reminder of who built this church in the first place. We did not randomly start gathering together here as a social club. I did not leave my home in the United States to come hang out with you all although that would have been very lovely. (laughs) Instead, we gather here to worship the God of peace, which leads me to my final point this evening. Gospel communities are built by God. Paul prays for the Thessalonians here in this benediction that they will be sanctified completely and that they may be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord. As we have talked about previously through our study here in First Thessalonians, we are positionally sanctified in Christ. We are redeemed and we have taken on Christ's righteousness as sons and daughters. But we are also being progressively sanctified by being made to look more and more like Christ as we grow closer to him. Paul prays that the Lord will continue this process of sanctification so that the Thessalonians may be blameless before the Lord at the coming of Christ. What is amazing about this prayer is that it is not just a prayer, but it is followed by a promise. Paul says that he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We can trust that the Lord will continue his work in us, his people. God has built this community. He has brought us all together from our various walks of life to put us in this church, to know him and to know him intimately. But he hasn't just placed us here. He continues to look after us. He continues to build us up and maintain us so that we may one day be blameless before him. This benediction is one of my favorites because it promises that God will build us up. Just like we read in Psalm 125 at the beginning of this service, we know that God will surround us, that he will protect us, that he Will keep us safe. It, the, the psalm said this it said, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountain surrounds Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Church, I implore you this evening, <laughs> lean on the promises of God. And act as he has called us to. This is how we can be a gospel community which honors God in every act of worship. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for sanctifying us. We thank you that you pulled us out of the darkness and into the light. You showed us the weight of our own sins and gave us salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, we live to honor you, seeking to give you worship and to enjoy you forever. So as we gather as a church, help us to follow your commands. Help us to love the ministers in our lives. Equip the leaders who are serving your people so that they may honor you. Help us to love one another here in this congregation. Lord, we often avoid bits of confrontation because we can feel awkward. But help us to overcome that hesitation so that we may love our brothers and sisters here in this church. Finally, Lord, help us to honor you through our worship. Let us rejoice, pray and be thankful with our entire hearts so that we may grow closer to you. Lord, thank you for each blessing you continue to bestow on us as your people. Lord, we love you and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now we are going to respond by singing one more hymn of praise and that